Hi! Welcome to Coffee and Real Talk for Writers, where we get real about the writing life. Writing might be a solitary activity, but becoming a successful author is anything but. So grab a cuppa, pull up a chair, and let's talk. Hello, and welcome to Episode 12 of Coffee and Real Talk for Writers. I'm your host, Talina Winters, and I'm recording this on Thursday, March 31, 2022. So I'm going to start off first off with a comment that was left on my episode 11 question of the week. And the question was, was there a time you disagreed with an editor's recommendation? And are you glad you did? And Brenna Bailey Davies, my faithful commenter says, I've only worked with an editor once on a short story, and I agreed with everything she suggested. I'm sure I'll disagree with something in the future, though. Also, I love everything you said in this episode about what authors should know about working with editors. And what a great mug quote. And thank you very much, Brenna. Brenna is an editor, and she is in the process of writing her first uh, full-length novel and getting it published. So I know she's going to gain a lot more experience on that side soon. And the mug quote she was referring to was a paraphrase of a Douglas Adams quote. Uh, And the quote itself was, the guide says there's an art to flying, said Ford, or rather a knack. The knack lies in learning how to throw yourself at the ground and miss. And that was from Life, the Universe and Everything. And so I'm going to ask a question of the week, of course, at the end of this episode. So you're welcome to always come and leave your comments or responses to the question um, on my podcast blog episode, which is linked in the show notes. So you probably noticed that I missed last week, um, and that was due to my tight revision schedule on Every Star That Shines, which I'll talk about more in a minute. Um, I have noticed, like, when I started this podcast, I for, for some reason thought I could manage to do it in three hours a week. And I was wrong. It's it's averaging between four and six hours per week, which is more time than I had originally planned for it. And over the course of time, that extra commitment that I wasn't really planning on has added up. And so sometimes that's been a drain on me emotionally because of the stress it puts on my other deadlines and um, stuff like that. So I will keep trying for weekly, but I will sometimes do bi-weekly as I have been doing this month uh, when that's necessary. Like this podcast is all volunteer. I do it all myself. And there are times when other things are just going to take higher priority, but that doesn't mean I have abandoned the podcast. I will keep doing it. However, because of that, I am going to drop the season from the episode number and just start counting episodes up sequentially. Um, I think in the background, I'm still going to have to enter a season number and I'll just do that by year or something. But as far as anyone else is concerned, this is episode 12. We're no longer in a season. It's just what is what it is. Okay, and writing news. Uh, It's been quite a month for me writing wise. Um, Besides the things happening in my personal life that I've hinted at and I'm still not going into details on, um, but those are causing quite a bit of stress and taking time. And uh, But other than that, there's been like exciting news on the writing front. So as I mentioned in my last episode, I did finish the first draft of Every Star That Shines. And then in the two weeks since then, I have finished the revision and sent it off to my editor, my uh, who's doing a developmental critique on it, and some beta readers. And I'll talk about the beta readers in a minute. Um, But 
I just want to talk a bit about why this is an accomplishment for me, <laughs> which is, it's funny. It's not my first novel, obviously. I've written several novels and many of them are quite long. And ironically enough, that's actually partly why this book is an accomplishment for me. Because I have either written novels that are 162,000 words plus, my last one being 300,000 words, or I've written what I hoped would be short stories that turned into novellas. I really suck at writing short and I've been terrible at estimating the actual word count a story would end up at based on the story idea I had. And I've always written long. Um, and I wanted that to change this time. So when I started, I estimated, I estimated it would be between 65,000 and 75,000 was my goal as a final finished product for this entire series um, of books. Um, and I thought this particular book when I started would be between 65,000 and 70,000. Um, and by about the time I got to one third of the first draft, I figured it would actually be between 70,000 and 75,000. And I was still terrified I was going to overwrite it by like a long ways. So I got to halfway and I'm like, Oh no, maybe it's going to be more than that. Maybe I'm going to be like up in 76,000 or more. Um, but when I finished that first draft, I was at 69,000 words and I thought I still had a chapter and a few hundred words of epilogue to finish. And I knew that I would be increasing my word count somewhat as I went through revisions. Now, when I was writing my first few novels and short stories, my word count would generally increase by about 30%, which is huge. Um, but I just, it's because of how I wrote. I didn't necessarily fill in those details as I went. I did them in revisions. I have gotten cleaner and um, gotten more, I tend to put more in those first drafts now um, and have a better balance of everything. So it's not usually 30% anymore, but it's still often looking at 10%. So I was a little nervous at finishing at 69,000 words. I was nervous that, oh no, maybe it will actually go over 75,000, especially because I thought I had another chapter and like 300 words or so in an epilogue to finish. But I was going to wait to do those because I wasn't quite sure what I was, what I needed to put in them because I knew there was a storyline I needed to tweak as I went through revisions. So I thought, well, I'll write those after I've done my revisions. So I went and I did the revisions and my work count did go up, but uh, not as much as I thought. And then when I got to the end, after tweaking that one storyline, I realized I had actually managed to address everything in the, the final chapter that I'd already written. And then whatever was left, I could just work into that epilogue as I revised it. And so, um, yeah, I actually ended the project at 73,000 words. And I was so excited because it's a victory for me because I didn't overwrite it. And... Um, and it's all kind of balanced and I actually hit my goal word count and that felt amazing. <laughs> um, also, the other thing I, that this project was stressing me out about was deadlines um, because I did have to bump my deadlines for my previous project so many times. I was really worried about, uh, you know, I kind of had this lack of confidence that I could hit deadlines anymore, actually. And that has not completely gone away. I did have to bump the editor, uh, the date with my editor one time by two weeks. And before that, I had bumped my estimated finish date already for myself by two weeks or a month or something. So basically, I, I had to bump my 
dates twice only once once I actually talked to the editor which still didn't feel great so this confidence hasn't completely gone away but uh sorry the lack of confidence hasn't gone away but it is better because that wasn't bad and I think that I could probably do better and know better about myself next time and be more able to hit those deadlines I also learned some things about my writing process as I went through so every little bit helps so before I get off the topic of um, every star that shines and the revision, I just want to talk about something new I'm trying with my beta readers this time. So I don't always have beta readers for my stories and my novels, um, other than my mom, who beta reads everything I write. But especially now that I hire a developmental editor to assess my first drafts, I don't always go and get beta readers, uh, depending on what I think I need to get feedback on. But this time, um, I did get beta readers because uh, the story is circling or centering around the local kids' theater production. And the story is set in an analog of my hometown, and I've been involved in this theater production. So um, it's been a couple years, though, and my role in the, in the production has always been, like, I've been a musician in the orchestra. So I haven't been super involved in some of the other aspects and I haven't done a lot of the other volunteer roles and things like that. So I wanted to get some feedback from uh, from people who knew what they were doing better than me to make sure that I got those things right. So my friend um, who has directed the musical music for the musical and also another friend of mine who's produced it for a few years, um, they're both beta reading and I'm might get even um i'm still waiting back to hear back from the director uh who has run the kids musical in our town for many years see if she's available or not i'm wondering if i have to check uh, maybe i got her email address wrong anyways um but the point is i've got these beta readers going through and for anyone who's worked with beta readers before you know sometimes it can be a little frustrating to try and get them to give you the kind of feedback you actually need some of them think that they need to tell you about typos and grammar and punctuation errors, which is not what a beta reader is for. And, and so setting appropriate expectations for them is really, really important, but also they're doing you a favor. Like they're basically reading your book and giving you feedback for free, unless you're getting a paid beta read, which is a thing and you can totally do that. Um, and that's essentially when I have gotten sensitivity reads in the past, which I have done on my last um, on my two Grigori books, I've gotten sensitivity reads and I pay for that. So those are essentially beta reads. Um, but yeah, so if you are getting free beta reads, though, you like you you just definitely want to make sure that you're making it easy for them to give you the kind of feedback that would actually be the most helpful for you. So on some of my past novels, I've like given them this big sheet of introduction of like, this is the kind of feedback I need. This is not the kind of feedback I need, blah, 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 you know, and it's been like this whole thing. And I feel like I'm making a lot more work for them in some ways, just by trying to set the appropriate expectations or, you know, like, I, I don't know. I feel like I'm stressing them out. For one thing, I don't need that much feedback on this book. So I didn't need something that in depth, but um, I also wanted to make it really easy because I wanted to, to send it to them with book funnel. So they would just, I knew they would just mostly be reading it on their phones. And so I, you know, they're not going to want to go send a huge long paragraph of text to me if, if they see something wrong or whatever. So what I did is because I have a Squarespace website, um, I used 
uh, that, but you can also do the same thing with Google Forms if you don't have a website that will allow you to do this. But on Squarespace, I basically, I just made a, uh, a page that is not listed in my directory or anything, but um, I had this page on my own URL so that uh, it was, I, they would know it was safe. And I put a form on there with that, that was going to be my feedback form for this. Now on Squarespace, I can, I can actually hook that up to Google Sheets. So um, I, I set it up so that when somebody submitted a response, it would both email me and it would put it into this Google Sheets document. And then I had like a dropdown. Well, so I had their name and their email. So I know who it is that's actually leaving the feedback. And then I had a dropdown that had the chapter that they just finished reading. And then under that, I have like a little required section. That's this little survey section from like uh, strongly disagree to strongly agree. And then I just have like five questions that are just kind of the, the basic things that I want a, a, a beta reader to tell me as they're going through the story of things like, um, was the chapter engaging? Is the plot easy to follow? Are the characters believable or acting believably? Um, do you want to read on? And is it meeting your genre expectations? So that's the required section. Then I have three little fields underneath that are optional. Um, and they're text fields and they ask about standout moments, what needs improvement, and it's just a general kind of like anything else you want to tell me kind of field. And I asked my beta readers to, uh, if, if they could, if they thought about it at the end of every chapter to, to try and fill it out at the end of every chapter, but definitely every few chapters or whenever they see something that needs improvement. So I've been getting, it's been really fun actually getting these emails as they go through the book and seeing their responses. And in like general, everything's positive, except for, you know, I, I've gotten a few things wrong. This is why I got to have a beta readers, but um, it's been fun to see those responses because um, often beta, when beta readers are engaged in your story, they don't think to stop and make note of the things that they're really enjoying. So all you hear at the end are the few things that they didn't enjoy or that you needed to fix or whatever. And this has been about as close as I think as I'm going to get to getting that uh, experience of going to a movie screening, which I've often wished I could do with my books, like watch people read the book and see where they're at and see how they're reacting. I would love that. But I think this is as close as I'm going to get because I'm getting like little little comments as they go through like, oh, I love that, this, that you mentioned this or I love that, you know, this person is acting this way and things like that. So that's been really fun. And it hasn't been terribly burdensome on them either. Like obviously they're they're continuing to do it. And sometimes they put these little quick notes in there, even though they're typing with their thumbs. So <laughs> I feel like it was a good match. It, and I'm definitely going to try this again uh, for future beta readers. Okay, so... Uh, my plan moving forward after I, after I wrapped up the revision and I sent it to my editor Sunday night, I had to edit through the weekend to hit the deadline, but I hit it. Yay. So on Monday morning, um, I spent a bunch of my time planning my upcoming timelines and kind of assessing how things went with writing this last project. Um, as well as, you know, like, did I hit my goals of more work-life balance while I was writing it, etc. So as I mentioned, writing it did take a few weeks longer than I thought, but it wasn't bad. Uh, but I did still have a fair amount of existential angst and dread that I wouldn't make those deadlines. However, I'm beginning to wonder if that would happen no matter how far out my deadline was. Like, seriously, I think sometimes you have to get to a point where it's like, maybe this is just part of my process. <laughs> Isn't that great? So even though the deadline with my editor added stress the, like the moment I said it 
I was doing great. I had I was feeling good about the book. I set that deadline with my editor, and I was just like, "Oh no, <laughs> what if I don't make it?" <laughs> so um, the uh, but on the flip side of that, that deadline actually did motivate me to keep getting in the chair, even during this really stressful month I've just had and to make sure that I kept working towards it and didn't drag the project out just because I had other stuff going on in my life. So that's actually a positive in a way. Um, but just kind of knowing that that deadline angst is just part of my personality or however I work through things. Um, it's like, Oh good. I have that to look forward to on every project for the rest of my life. Uh, maybe not everyone, but uh, I, I've just, I think I finally had to admit to myself, this is the way I work. Anyways, as far as publishing, because I had planned to finish this project so far ahead of the actual release day, um, the, re the release day didn't have to move, even though I had to bump things with my editor, which, which was great. That was a good choice that I made for myself because I, other than wanting to make sure I didn't mess up my editor's schedule, I, I wasn't stressed about not meeting the rest of the publishing schedule. Um, so the release date for that is now August 30 for direct sales. And I'm doing an experiment with this one to start training my readers to try direct sales. Some of them have like, and it does make it easier when they've already gotten their freebies and stuff by book funnel, because that's how I de deliver my eBooks, etc., for direct sales as well. Uh, but I, um, so I'm hoping that by releasing something that I know they want a month earlier, uh, if they buy it directly, and also it's going to be cheaper, um, I haven't actually told my readers this yet, but I will, that um, once it releases, like, I mean, I have a pre-order amount uh, sale price already set for all stores, but like within a week of it going live in all stores, I'm putting the price up. And so I'm hoping that... Uh, you know, I can really strongly promote them buying directly through me. Um, and my newsletter subscribers as well have, a, have a discount code that they're getting it even cheaper if they buy it direct. So I'm really wanting to promote more direct sales this year, as I mentioned before. And so this is one of the things I'm trying. The other thing I had to do was kind of think about it, like it twisted around a little bit in my brain. Like even as I've been talking about, it, I've been talking about releasing it a month earlier direct, but, um, well, that's true. It's not early. It's the release date. I had to twist that around. This is actually being published on August 30. I'm just only publishing it directly, just like I do with my dating patterns. And then on September 27, it's releasing on other platforms, but that doesn't mean that that's the publishing date. So I had to kind of twist that in my, my, my brain a little bit. So I have to retrain myself a little bit as well um, as my readers. So on that note, um, that buffer in my publishing date, as I said, helped balance my stress out with writing this book, but I don't have as much buffer with the next one because like I'm, I'm purposely like, like this book's going to be ready to go a while before it is published, but I'm purposely delaying the, the release date so that there's only about two months between the release date of that and the next one. Um, I guess it'll be three months now because I'm releasing in August, not September. Uh, so there's three months and then, but the next book's a Christmas book. And so I don't like, like Christmas is kind of a hard deadline after Christmas. You don't release Christmas books. That's just not what you do. So 
anyway, uh, I do have it planned to release at the end of November. So I do have a little bit of buffer, like about a, almost a month of buffer. If I do need to push it a little bit, I can, but I don't want to. So uh, I don't have as much buffer in that one. It'll be interesting. Uh, hopefully that doesn't stress me out too much. But um, I did like when I was looking at, you know, kind of doing that. I can't remember the term, you know, that thing when you kind of look at the project you just did and you like hash everything out and figure out what happened. Um, so when I was planning for the first draft of Every Star That Shines, um, I had allowed for two weeks for Christmas and then I ended up having to extend it a bit. I originally thought my first draft would take eight weeks plus two weeks of planning. And um, I think it took 12 weeks, including the Christmas holiday plus the two weeks of planning. So, and then two weeks to revise as well on the other end. <clears throat> but the first draft writing itself took about 12 weeks minus two weeks for Christmas would be 10 weeks. So I buffered my, or I rearranged my schedule a little bit to plan for about the same for the next book. Um, and because I figured there's probably going to be like with this family stress that's going on, I'm sure there's going to be two weeks of unexpected or unplanned time off in the middle of my next writing session, which is fine. Sometimes I just need a little bit more buffer. It's good to have buffer. Um, and it still allowed me to get my publishing date in November. And so I'm feeling good about that. Okay. So next week, I'm hoping to take three afternoons and evenings off to start painting our living room. I'm right now, I'm kind of like in the in-between stage between books, even though my brain keeps trying to start brainstorming the next book already. I'm like, stop it. <laughs> that was a weird noise. Um, so <laughs> I am technically not going to start brainstorming and planning the next book until the week after next. So next week I'm taking three days. I'm going to be working in the mornings, but then I'm going to be painting my living room because, um, we never did do that. It's the one room in our house we haven't painted since we moved in. It's also where my office is. It's a very full room. It's a very big room. So it's quite a project. Um, and it needs to be prepped. Like the trim needs to be painted even. It's just like primer and needs a bunch of prep done. So it's, it's going to be quite an involved project. I probably won't finish it in three days. Uh, but I might get about half done, which is good. And uh, the other thing is I'm really looking forward to the arrival of our Starlink, which has shipped. And even as I am uh, recording this, our internet has been going in and out all day again. But once I get stable, fast internet, which I'm very much looking forward to, I plan to actually start uh, scheduling some more interviews for this podcast. So um, maybe that'll fill in on those weeks where I'm not quite as able to put as much time into podcasting. Okay, on to this week's big idea, which is improving your characters using the Enneagram. And I know that's a funny word that um, you may or may not have heard of before. And I'll explain what it is in a minute. But uh, first of all, I just want to talk about how I've created my characters before. So I'm an intuitive writer for the most part. And that is how I generally create my characters. I just start thinking about a story and generally characters kind of just pop into my head and intuitively I have a sense of what they're there for and their kind of general persona. Sometimes I have to spend some work really digging into them and developing them depending on how big of a role they are in my story. And obviously uh, more main characters, I spend more time getting to know them. So um, I, I do get to find out a lot more about them. 
Um, but sometimes I, I can have a character who's like maybe a side character and I can have written quite a bit of the book and had them keep popping into the story uh, before I finally have a situation where I have to really think about how they would react and then start questioning their motivations and wounds and stuff like that. So motivations and wounds are huge in creating engaging characters. Wounds create lies your character believes, and those lies are motivations for the things they do. Without knowing these things, characters often feel two-dimensional and are quite forgettable. With them, even your minor characters will jump off the page. So I've known this for years, but it wasn't until quite recently that I learned there was a tool, a very, very old tool put together by the Egyptians thousands of years ago, where the different types of wounds, lies, and motivations had already been neatly categorized and codified. And that tool is called the Enneagram, which simply means a diagram of nine, which you'll see why in a second. So I want to say that before I give the following explanation, that I have only been learning about the Enneagram for less than two weeks, okay? <laughs> I am not an expert by any stretch. Um, it appeared simple to me when I first dove in, which is why I decided to do it, but it's not, <laughs> okay? It is simple on one level because there's like, nine types of personalities that they have on there, which doesn't seem like a ton, but there's a lot more to it than you'd expect once you dive in. And so that makes it both very accessible and also deeply interesting and broad. And you can study it for a long time before you really get all the depths of it. Um, but it's also great as a tool for learning about yourself and other people because it deals in motivations and talks about how we behave when we're on a scale from healthy to unhealthy. So it's also a great tool for self-improvement. And I started learning about it so I could revise my book and make sure my characters were in alignment. But um, I can really see, even though I've done a lot of work with personality and um, and my, my own wounds and lies and things like that before, I can really see how this is going to be a great tool for growth for me personally. So going to, into depth to explaining how the Enneagram works is far beyond the scope of this one podcast segment, which I'd like to keep to 15 minutes. Um, <laughs> so there is a ton of information out there on the internet about it. Uh, so if you want to know more about it after listening to this, please go educate yourself. And I will put some links into the show notes that can get you started for at least understanding the overview of the Enneagram. So you don't have to do a deep dive just to understand a little bit more about it. Um, and then I'll give you some recommendations for if you want to do that deep dive. I actually have some books on the way that are about it, uh, about the Enneagram, and I'm very excited to dive into those even more. So in brief, the Enneagram divides personalities into nine overarching types, each of which are further subdivided into three subtypes. The types are defined by how they are motivated by a certain passion or uh, sin, uh, but basically it's called that because the passions are essentially your, the so-called seven deadly sins plus fear and self-deceit, um, or it's just also vanity, also known as vanity. So you've got these nine passions. And then on the other side of that is their virtues. What, uh, a person who is healthy in that type would use more than, you know, being motivated by the passion. So the pa passions are the behaviors we develop to deal with our wounds. The wounds give us our core fears or lies as, and the motivations are the desires we have based on the lies. So the motivations are our core longings. They're sometimes called. So the subtypes are defined by how they interact with that passion. 
and defines how they approach their relationship to themselves, other people, and their environment. While each type is divided into the same three subtypes, because of all the wounds and motivations and such, and how that, manif how that manifests is very different for each subtype. Uh, so that you get 27 very, very vastly different uh, personalities. Also, a person's level of health also determines how um, each subtype and type manifests. So a healthy helper who is an Enneagram 2 probably looks like the hero in a Hallmark movie or my husband, as I've discovered. He's amazing. <laughs> And he's taken. Anyways, an unhealthy one looks like Annie Wilkes in Stephen King's Misery, who kidnapped and essentially tortured the author she was obsessed with, all in the name of helping him. So the helper's sin is pride. And if you reject their help, an unhealthy version will let that pride carry them to extreme lengths to force it upon you. But a healthy one will have the humility to recognize it's not personal. So as I was practicing learning the types this week, I realized that one of the best examples of an unhealthy two villain that I've seen, because I haven't actually seen Misery um, or, or read it or anything, uh, but I have understood enough about Misery to, like I've heard enough about it to understand the plot. But one I have seen is the antagonist in the Netflix show Raising Dion, which is a fantastic show I highly recommend. Uh, the pride of a rejected two in that one is so apparent when there's, uh, when the twist comes at the end of the first season, you're just like, wow. <laughs> Anyways, that's all I'm going to say about that. Okay. So there is a lot more to the Enneagram than what I've just gone through about it, but that's the basics. That's all you really need to know for what I'm going to tell you. Uh, as I said, people much more educated and smarter than I am have expounded on it at great lengths, and I'll put some links in the show notes to a couple of websites that get into it. And I also recommend Drew Newkirk's videos on YouTube if you really want to dive in. Um, he's got some really great in-depth things about each of the subtypes, and yeah, I, I just li like his approach. Uh, he does use a few F-bombs, just so you're aware, but um, yeah, the information's fantastic. So as I finished the first draft of Every Star That Shines, there was a, there were a couple of characters that were still a little bit slippery to me, as my friend Brenna says. Um, and I've actually used that term before too. Like they, you just don't have quite a full grasp of them. So I felt like I understood them pretty well. But I think because this project was written over a short time comparatively to some of the other things I've worked on, and there's actually a pretty big cast, um, all things considered, I felt like I needed to make sure the characters were acting consistently, that I, I had a better grasp on them. So like basically just saying, because I didn't spend as much time with them over the course of writing the project, I just didn't feel like I knew them very well yet, even though I'd written them. Um, so I'd heard about the Enneagram and knew enough to understand that it was about motivations, lies, and longings and thought, that's perfect. There are only nine types. So that'll be way easier to use as a tool to sharpen my characters than the Clifton strengths, which I talked about quite a bit. And there are 34 of those. Ha 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 ha. That was before I knew about all the subtypes and healthy to unhealthy and all that stuff, etc. So I got into it and realized, oh, wait, there's actually a lot more to this than I thought. But that's okay. Um, despite all that, after a 10-hour day of crash coursing in all the 27 subtypes and like watching YouTube videos, which I like watch at like 
one and a half and two times speed. So I just like suck in the information. I'm like, I'm on a deadline here. I have to become an expert instantaneously. Felt a little bit like Tony Stark when he was like, when did you become an expert on like, I don't know what, what is like nuclear physics or something. He's like last night, <laughs> I wish I could read as fast and absorb as fast as Tony Stark, but I can't quite. Anyways. So after I, I did all that, I started typing my characters and then dove into the revisions. And for some of them, I was surprised that I actually had done a better job than I thought as I was going through. I'm like, oh yeah, I actually had been working all those things in way better than I even realized. And I was just doing it intuitively, which is fine. Uh, For other characters though, I was really glad that I had done all that work because there were some things I definitely needed to tweak to make them stronger as I went through, which is exactly why I did it. That's how I felt when I started learning the Enneagram was like, this is why I need it. So... Do you need to understand the Enneagram to use lies, wounds, and motivations for your characters? Like, absolutely not. Um, Obviously, I've written how many books now and, and edited how many books developmentally, and I've never understood the Enneagram before. Uh, But um, it helps. Like, I'm just, it's just another tool in your toolkit. But by the way, the opening section of the book, The Emotional Wound Thesaurus by Angela Ackerman and Becca Puglisi has an excellent tutorial on using lies, wounds, and motivations that never mentions the Enneagram. Um, I do recommend every author have this book in their collection of craft books. It is a fantastic resource, and I will put a link in the show notes for that. But yeah, Enneagram, helpful tool to have in your toolkit. And I do intend to keep studying it for a while until creating or sharpening characters by their type becomes almost like second nature to me. And I never even got into the existential crisis I had when I realized my own type, but I'll save that for my journal and my very helpful husband's listening ears. <laughs> my my poor husband. <laughs> he just takes so much from me. Uh, he's wonderful. Anyways, if you want to know how the core motivations of the Enneagram relate to you as a writer, H. Claire Taylor has a great email series she's actually doing right now, and she's just sent out number two, the helper. So she's not terribly far into it, but she's sending it out for free. She's going through the nine types as they relate to writers and your career specifically. And um, you can get caught up and sign up. Like she's actually got all the previous posts just there for you, but you can sign up at www.ffs.media slash read now. Okay, mug quote of the week. And this is a little bit um, esoteric, this one, but I am the wound and the blade, the torturer and the flayed by Charles, I'm guessing, Charles Baudelaire, The Flowers of Evil. So I thought this was a good reminder that we're all wounded and we're also the one who can cause wounds for others, wittingly or unwittingly. We all have lies and motivations and wounds. Other people's are different than yours, but part of being human is learning how to give grace to others for their blind spots and hoping they do the same for you. As writers, we are literally the wound and the blade, the torture and the flayed for our characters. We get to see how our characters are both and between their flaws and virtues, and we use that to create character arcs. And it's that movement that makes them resonate with us. So the question of the week is what tools do you use when you are creating or refining your characters? 
And if you've used the Enneagram before, I'd love to hear how you've used it and uh, any tips you have for me. But if you've used other tools, I, I'm always open to hearing about new tools. So please definitely let me know. And you can leave that uh, as a comment on the podcast episode on my website, which I will link to in the show notes below. I hope you have a great week and thank you for having coffee with me. Coffee and Real Talk for Writers has been produced by Tolina Winters. The music for this podcast was written by Josh Rickard of joshrickardmusic.com. You can find episode show notes, leave a comment, subscribe, or if you're feeling generous, buy me a coffee at tolinawinters.com slash podcast. And be sure to leave a review on the podcatcher of your choice. Tell your friends to come by too. The kettle's always on. So until next time, I hope you keep writing and keep it real. Thanks for listening. Bye.